According to Jesus, what's the great commandment? It all blurred together there. I don't know what you just said. Jesus was asked that question. What's the great commandment? Matthew 22, 37. Jesus replied, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Anyone know the first of the 10 commandments? Yeah, Heath's got that one. Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. So I I don't want to be simplistic, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, and I don't want to come across as trite, but it's almost like God doesn't want ultimate rivals for our heart. It's almost like God wants worship exclusivity. It's like he is seeking a whole life commitment to him. Not in part, but the whole. That you would love the Lord your God with everything that you have. Wholehearted love and no other gods before him. My friends, I believe that God is in the business of pursuing us until he has preeminence in all of our life, every part. He refuses to settle for less than that. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up this morning to Revelation chapter two. I will put the verses on the screen. I also failed to mention every week, there are Bibles that are in the back. Those are for you to use. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one home with you. Uh, But Revelation chapter two, verse 12. As we... That's right, so if you have a smartphone, you can pull up the Bible app. There you go. I recommend the YouVersion app. That's the one I use. In the new year, we started a series in the book of Revelation called Seven Letters. And that's because in the beginning, this is the last book of the Bible, but at the beginning of the last book of the Bible, we find John, who's the beloved disciple of Jesus, And he has this vision. He has the revelation of Jesus. And he's exiled on the island of Patmos in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And he's there on the Lord's Day worshiping on this particular day when he has this vision of Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus. And he sees Jesus. Eyes of fire. Hair like wool feet like burnished bronze. And he has this vision of Jesus in his splendor and glory, resurrection glory. And this Jesus then tells John to write letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's where we get the seven letters series from. So we've already heard a couple of the letters. We heard the letter to the church at Ephesus. And he talked to them about how they've lost their first love. Last week, we looked at the church of Smyrna where Jesus commended the beauty of their suffering and their poverty and their faithfulness unto death. 
And we saw with some real beauty how he jammed the empire's machine with his poetry. If you don't catch that reference, go back and listen last week. So now we're on to the third letter. Revelation 2.12, letter number three. It's a letter to the church at Pergamum. Each of these letters, there's a vision of Jesus that he wants them to see, a particular piece of the character and life of Jesus that he wants them to see. And then there's also a message that he wants them to hear. And I would argue all of it becomes fodder for our own learning and growth to hear. What what would Jesus want to say to us? So here, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, to the church of Pergamum. He starts talking about how they've been a church, these are my words, but a church of compartmental compromise. Revelation 2.12 says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So most all of the seven letters, you're like, why are we in the book of Revelation? (laughs) That stuff's weird. (laughs) But all of the seven letters, they, they, they carry a very similar form and pattern. Most all of them include a word of commendation, a word of encouragement, a word of comfort, but then there's also a word of challenge, too. So this may not be super creative as far as a sermon goes, uh, but these are the three things I want to walk through uh, today. The word of comfort that Jesus gives, the word of challenge that Jesus gives, and then the Christ, who is also described. So let's hear, what does he say to this church? What are the words of comfort that he says to them? For me, one of the more comforting things about the ministry of the Lord Jesus, like right now, is that even though Jesus has ascended to heaven, even though Jesus has risen from the dead and he's exalted at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over heaven and earth right now as we speak, even though he is high and lifted up, Jesus also sees and he also knows what's happening here. He knows what's happening among his churches. One of the images used earlier in Revelation is that Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands. And the lampstands are his church, the churches. That Jesus is seen walking among the lampstand. He actually sees and he knows and he cares and he understands what's happening. And that's what he says in verse 13. Jesus says to them, to the people of God in Pergamum, he says, I know where you live. I know where you live. 
Now, we use that phrase in different ways. <laughs> Sometimes that's, uh, we use that as a threat, like, I know where you live, right? And if you cross me, it's like, uh-huh, I know where you live, and I can track you down and take... That's not Jesus' tone as he says this. It's actually a word of empathy to them. He says, actually, I know, I know where you live. You live in Pergamum. The city of Pergamum is located, here's a map uh, if you want to kind of orient yourself. Pergamum, 100 miles north of Ephesus, 65 miles northeast of Smyrna. It was inland, not a harbor town like some of the other ones. It's a beautiful valley, very productive, beautiful place to live. But Jesus, when he describes, like, yeah, I know where you live, he uses this phrase, verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he ends that verse by saying, where Satan dwells. You're like, wow, talk about a rough neighborhood. There's a a neighborhood in New York called Hell's Kitchen. It's like, yeah, Pergamum, Satan's throne. My oldest daughter, Kayla, is currently a junior at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And among many of the things that she enjoys about being on the East Coast is that she loves to tell stories to people who live on the East Coast about what life is like in the Northwest, to people who have never been to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and some of her classmates, she said, they get these really wide eyes. We're like, really? That's, that's what it's like in Olympia? She talks about the person who is in our neighborhood. We lived in the Northeast neighborhood for over a decade. The person in our neighborhood who would take their pet turkey for a walk on a leash. <laughs> I'm like, they have pet turkeys in Olympia? I'm like, yeah, they do. I used to walk up and down right by the water every day. Is North Carolina, 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 Carolina. Nope, it's in D.C. Well, one of her favorite things to explain to her friends is the procession of the species. It's like, yeah, there's this, it's this annual parade where everyone dresses up like their favorite species, maybe a gooey duck. And everyone lines up in evolutionary order with amoebas in the front all the way to complex creatures. And they're like, no way. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. Right? Because you live in like, yeah, procession of the species. It's our parade. It's like trying to describe the naked bike ride in Portland. You're like, yeah. That's, that's Portland. Each city that you live in has its own little flair and its distinctive culture. Pergamum had its own, too. And again, history and archaeology kind of colors it in for us, and I'll try not to spend too much time on this, but some of the things distinctive to Pergamum, there was emperor worship there. It was a a provincial city. It was a very Roman city. Some say uh, that if Ephesus was like the New York City of Asia Minor, that Pergamum was like it's Washington, D.C. It was a capital city. Lots of bureaucrats, lots of politicians. There were temples there to Caesar. It's where the first city that implemented emperor worship. So all throughout the Roman Empire, there was a phrase that Caesar is Lord. But there it wasn't just lip service. It was real emperor worship where they worshiped the emperor as a god. There were other numerous temples. The temple of Athena, Dionysus, Zeus. The temple and the worship of Dionysus was prominent on the Acropolis. They believed Dionysus to be the offspring of Zeus and a human mother that offered followers life after death. 
if he would indulge in the festival and feast of raw meat and wine. And so they would gather together and their followers would drink wine to excess, gorge on raw meat, and the women of the town would run through the hills dancing, celebrating, and committing sexual immorality. The worship of Dionysus got so extravagant that eventually in Rome it became outlawed as immoral for the Romans. Temple after temple after temple. There was also uh, this place of spiritual healing. If the people of Pergamum wanted to be healed, they went to the temple shrine of Asclepius, the snake god of healing. And everyone that would go in would enter the hospital complex passing by a, a snake symbol that they would then give credit to for their healing. They would go into underground tunnels, get drugged, go to sleep, receive visions about their healing, drink sacred healing water. Again, we could talk a lot about what it was like to live in Pergamum. All to say that a person who wanted to follow and worship Jesus as God encountered lots of challenges to that. There were so many other options. And Jesus says, Church of Pergamum, I know where you live. And he says it's where Satan dwells, where he rules. Some speculate that the temples were aligned in such a way that it kind of looked like a throne. Oh, one scholar puts it this way, I think it's succinct and helpful, that Pergamum is a city where Satan exercises the kind of control and influence wielded by a king as someone powerful who sits on the throne, that Satan is working hard through both institutions and individuals in Pergamum to put pressure on Jesus' followers and destroy their Christian faith. And Jesus says, like, I, I know living there and following me isn't easy. It's like being a fish swimming upstream. And it feels like the pressure to conform is all around you. And there's so many options, so many spiritual options, so many gods, so many rituals, so many feasts, so many opportunities to connect with the divine. He goes, I know where you live. I know where you dwell. And he commends them for being faithful even unto death. He says, you didn't deny me. And there was a season where he talks about the faithful one, Antipas, the faithful witness, who tradition tells us was martyred for faith in Jesus. And he says, and even when he died, you didn't deny me. Faithful unto death. Good job. Good job. Jesus knows. He's, he gets that there are powers to contend with. He, he gets that it may be hard to remain faithful. He gets that the pressures are strong. So he says, good job. You did not deny me even to death in a culture that was spinning the other direction. But then verse 14, Jesus continues with a word of challenge to them. Verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. And from there, he talks about Balak and Balaam and eating food sacrificed to idols. And many of us are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> next thing. Give me the next thing. 
So if I can, I just want to really quickly tell you about the story of Balak and Balaam. Maybe some of you know it. But to get the full story, you have to go back to Numbers 22. For the sake of time, I won't read the entire passage. But if you want to flip back and follow along, Numbers 22, the story stretches a few chapters. There was a season in history when the children of Israel came out of Egypt. It was the Exodus. And then they moved into the Promised Land. Numbers 22, it's when the people of Israel encamped in the plains of Moab. Balak was the king of Moab, and he heard that the Israelites were coming close by, and simply put, it freaked him out. He'd heard the stories of what God had done to the other surrounding nations, and so to hear that the Israelites were coming near, he's like, what are we going to do? So here's his thought process. This is Numbers 22.6. He hires a spiritual leader, a prophet named Balaam, and he hires Balaam to curse Israel. Numbers 22.6 says, Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So trying to keep a very long story short, on more than one occasion, in fact, three times he hires Balaam to curse the people of Israel, and three times Balaam can't do it. He gets stopped. He can't, he can't curse them. And it frustrates him, and it frustrates Balak, and it frustrates everybody. But Balak, excuse me, Balaam comes to realize that you can't curse that which God has blessed. Ooh, that'll preach. By the end of Numbers 24, Balaam goes his way, Balak goes his way, But it's not the end of the story. In Numbers 25, you see in a very short kind of passage in a period of time, the people of Israel start to mingle together in relationship and friendship and then sexually with the people of Moab and things go from bad to worse. As the story goes, they can't be cursed because they're blessed, but they can be led into sin. So this is Numbers 25, 1 through 3. It says, When Israel lived in Shittim, or the Acacia Grove, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the... These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. When the dust has settled here, 24,000 people die in a plague. And at first glance, you're like, well, what does that have to do with Balaam or Balak? And at first, it doesn't appear to connect, but you keep going through Numbers, and you go all the way to Numbers 31, verse 16. Moses, later on, is talking about the women in Moab. Numbers 31, 16, he says, Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor that we just read about. So the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. And so as Moses retells that story, what he says is that these women caused the Israelites to stumble because they seduced them sexually 
based upon the advice of Balaam. It was as if Balaam finally came to the point where he says, I can't directly curse them, so if I can't curse them, I'll corrupt them. Or to put it another way, if I can't defeat them, then I'll deform them. If I can't topple them, then I'll tempt them. And so he taught Balak to set up stumbling blocks to draw the hearts of the people of Israel, first in relationship, first in casual relationship, then sexual relationship, and then eventually they're worshiping their gods, and then they become joined. That's the, the pattern here in Numbers 25.1. First, they're just hanging out in the acacia grove, and then they commit adultery, and then verse 2, they're invited to idolatrous sacrifices. Then the end of verse 2, they're worshiping false gods. By verse 3, Israel is joined to Baal, in a union, like a marriage union, a religious marriage union. The two became one flesh. This may be a rabbit hole too far down, but if you want to understand the doctrine of Balaam, it's this. It's to leave your life open in any way to the ever so slight progression of idolatry. Idolatry. The ever so slight progression of of idolatry. Ever so slightly, they left their lives open. Ever so slightly, things began to change and they drifted and their hearts were captured and they gave themselves over and pretty soon they ended up just worshiping a flat-out different God. So, we'll climb out of the numbers pit here back to Pergamum, back to Revelation 2. Jesus is talking to the people in the city of Pergamum, and he says, hey guys, guess what? There are people among you. You're doing the Balaam Balak thing all over again. There are people among you that are, that are teaching you, leading you, tempting you to open up your heart and your mind and your life ever so slightly to pretty soon you change one degree and one degree and one degree and now you're walking in a completely different direction than following after Jesus. Choosing whole body worship of false gods. It's the same story being reenacted in a different setting, in a different way, with different gods and different temptations But Jesus has come and he's warning them of a place of compartmental compromise where they've begun to give their life and allegiance and hearts away and they don't even really realize that it's happening. In a land with so many temples and so many gods and so much pressure to conform, to give in, to join in the rituals and the feasts, food sacrifice to idols, There are people in their midst that are encouraging this. And one thing leads to another, and pretty soon their church as a whole ends up in the deep end of idolatry, sexual immorality, worshiping another who is not God. This is is sobering. It's an interesting picture. They wouldn't deny the faith unto death. And he's like, good job. And yet at the same time, 
their hearts begin being deformed and given over to another. Gradually. So that's the comfort, that's the challenge. Who's the Christ? Again, like I said, each of these seven letters has a a different picture of Jesus that is then given to each church Amidst the comfort and the challenge, we now get to see the Jesus who's in the midst of this. That's fascinating which part of the character of Jesus gets shown to this church. Back to verse 12. Revelation 2.12 says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword which is kind of a riff off of chapter 1, verse 16, that says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 2.16, the call is, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who is this Jesus who comes to appear to the Pergamum church? Which part of Christ is on display. He is the one with the two-edged sword. That's not a picture we often see or maybe talk about. And we celebrate our stained glass images of the one who came and was born in the manger, baby Jesus, the Messiah, God taking on human flesh and dwelling among us, welcomed, hailed, It's also not lost on me, though, that we have the other stained glass behind us with a sword overhead. The church of Pergamum receives this image of Christ as the one with the two-edged sword. In the Greek, I won't give you too much of this, but in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, there's two different words for sword. One is the Makaira sword. The other one is the Ramphaya. That sounds fun to say. Ramphaya. I'm no sword expert, but I looked these two swords up. The Makaira sword is a relatively shorter sword for cutting. Some may call it a dagger, about 18 inches long commonly carried by Roman soldiers. The Machaira sword is the one that Peter had on him when he was in the garden when Jesus, when Jesus was being betrayed by Judas, and he, like, like we got to do something. So he pulls out his Machaira sword, and he starts swinging. He cuts off a guy's ear with his little Machaira sword, a dagger. But a Ramphaya, it's a different deal. It's a large broad sword used for cutting and piercing. Some may call it a machete. Not 18 inches long, five feet long, a two-foot-long handle, and a three-foot-long blade. This is a two-handed, double-fisted sword to wield it. Again, you had to use two hands. The fearsome fighters of North Greece used these, and you could cut through someone else's shield with it. What kind of sword is the two-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth? It's the Ramphaya. And I know some, like, I don't like this Jesus talk with swords and militaristic imagery. 
You could read this, and I would say read it wrong, and think like, man, Jesus is coming to kill some people. Better watch out with Jesus' Ramphaya is coming back. I just want to remind you of the consistent image of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation is the lamb who was slain. He is the one who is the sacrificed Messiah. And I find it powerful that the sword comes out of his mouth. Jesus is the word of God, and he comes with the sword. He is the word, he has a word, and it's a two-edged sword. It's an image of Jesus' judicial authority over his church, but if you want to see the way Jesus uses his sword, I point you back to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I believe this is what the sword of Jesus comes to do. Like that, that is some serious piercing to be able to cut through, to cut the division of soul and spirit. Where does that even begin and end? To, to cut with precision to the point of joints and marrow, to be able to rightly divide between the intentions of your heart and the thoughts in your mind that he can cut through. He can cut through the noise and through the fog and through the sin and through the, he can cut down to the very heart of human beings to know what is true. His word is truth. He cuts through the error. He cuts through the games. He cuts through the deception and the lies, and he separates it. Jesus says, I'm the one who comes with the two-edged sword out of my mouth. And I don't put up with the, the, the falsehoods and the deceptions and the diversions and the deluding and the deforming of your faith. I'm here to make right. I'm here to cut through it. I've come to make war, he says, against those who would lead others astray. Oh, the conquering, truth-filled, piercing ministry of Jesus. Because there's lots of stuff that happens in churches that has no business in the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, there's lots of stuff that happens in me that has no business in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I know where you live. I know where you live. That's good news to me. He knows where I live. He knows what it's like to live in Olympia. He knows what it's like to follow Jesus where I live. It's not easy. And he says, if there's any place where you are having your, your affections deformed, led away, just even ever so slightly, he says, repent. Turn. If there's any place where you're open to idolatry, repent. Any place where you would offer yourself in union with someone who is not me, repent. Turn. Okay, three quick observations, and I'm going to land the plane. 
As I read Revelation 2, this letter to Pergamum, three things I observe. Number one, idolatry is easier to spot in someone else's life than your own. True? Like, we're like, oh man, Pergamum? I can't believe those people. Like, we could walk through Pergamum and see the idol factory, like temples everywhere, the emperor worship, the Asclepius healing tunnels, Dionysus, Zeus, feasts, orgies that were considered immoral by Roman standards. We're like, man, how could, how could they live in a culture so given over to false gods? And it's easy for us to smugly say, I'd never, I'd never live like that easier to spot this in somebody else's life than your own but i think that's in part because we don't really know what an idol is one of my favorite people to quote tim keller once said that an idol is anything more important to you than god anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than god anything you seek to give you what only god can give you So to find out the idols of your heart, you only need to ask, what rules me and where do I look to meet the deepest needs of my soul? And when painted that way, we got idols all over the place. Easier to spot in somebody else's life, easier to point out in an ancient culture, easier to point at Pergamon and be like, man, that's a crazy city to live in. But when good things become ultimate things, it's easy for our hearts to be led astray. It could be your spouse, it could be family, it could be your job, it could be your car, it could be your sports teams, it could be your body, it could be your health, it could be your lawn, it could be your pet, it could be your education, it could be your political party election year. It could be your appearance, it could be your bands, it could be your income, your house, your success, your need to win, your people-pleasing, your materialism, or your self-righteousness that nothing on that list applies to you. (laughs) Second observation is that you can have conviction in one area of your life and compromise in another. Right, that's why, again, the goal of this thing is whole life, whole life formation to the ways of Jesus, to the kingdom of heaven. The call to follow Jesus is to offer up every domain of our life to his transforming work, that he would reform, reshape what is being deformed among us and tear down all the different compartments of our soul. Because again, in Pergamum, they're like, and rightly so, they're like, Jesus, I will die for you. I'm not going to renounce you even unto death. But don't you know it's one thing to die for Jesus and another thing to live for Jesus? That was the case in Pergamum. Conviction to not renounce Jesus even unto death and then compromise in the day-to-day in another area of their life. It's, It's possible to have both happening at the same time. Conviction in one area and compromise in another. Being shifted, shaped, led away from God in another. Yeah, I'm not gonna renounce Jesus, but I'll dabble. It's the way of Balaam. It's defeat by deformation. 
I begin to love the things of the world more than I love him. Seduced into things that I wouldn't ever imagine. And then finally, last observation is that repentance is a lifelong pursuit. So like, I repented back in 99, 79, 2003. <laughs> That's not the way repentance works. Any more than it works for me to tell my wife I loved her. I said I do back in 1999. I'll let you know if things change. <laughs> the great reformer Martin Luther, one of his theses is that God wills the whole of the Christian life to be one of repentance. The whole of your life is to be repentance. Each and every day, it's not just a one-time thing, but this ongoing, lifelong pursuit. And may the the, the sword of Jesus, the double-edged sword that comes from the mouth of Jesus, be able to, to rightly divide the things that are good and beautiful from the things that are leading to our own death and demise. The things that are not of the things of God. May the sword of Jesus come in, even to the joint and marrow, even to our thoughts and the intentions of our heart, which I know at times I deceive myself. I need Jesus, but yeah, that motivation is off. Okay, I want to repent and turn. It's a beautiful thing. It's a gift. It's not like, well, I guess I have to repent. No, it's an opportunity to step out of that which would be death into that which would be life. It's a beautiful gift. It's a lifelong pursuit. So may we repent quickly. May we repent often. May we turn daily to find Jesus and the truth of Jesus, that double-edged Ramphaya sword of Jesus, just doing what he needs to do to cut away and woe to those who would lead others astray from anything other than the pure truth of Jesus the Messiah as Lord in all areas of our life. So he who has ears to hear, she who has ears to hear, may we hear. And I didn't even mention the reward mentioned for this church at the end, verse 17. Hidden manna, bread from heaven, an opportunity to feast on the life that is from heaven, and a new name, a new name that no one knows, but a new identity, new communion with him, the richness of life with Jesus. Jesus is zealous for our whole life worship of him. May we not settle for anything less. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for revelation. It's a gift. Thank you for this church a few thousand years ago in a city that was hard to live in and follow you. God, I pray for an encouragement for the men and women in this room who have come to say, I want to follow Jesus. Because Lord, I know it may not be Pergamum, but it is not easy in Olympia to worship and follow Jesus exclusively. So Lord, would you give us ears to hear what you may be saying to us? And there's any places, any idols, 
Any places where we may have conviction over here, but over there, there's, there are things, values, affections, decisions, relationships that are just getting pulled away from you. Lord, may you write us, may you turn us, may you redeem us, renew us, shape us, set us back on the path of life. Lord, I pray for anyone in the room this morning who has not yet come to place their faith and trust in Jesus. May they sense an invitation today. And may we find shelter in your strength, in your power, in your authority, in your ability to deliver what you have promised. Risen King. Grateful that you see and you know us. We offer our church, we offer our lives, we offer our Mondays, our Tuesdays, this week to you. May we follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.